Welcome to Leaders in Travel Beyond the Business Card. I'm Scott Cleaver, and in the coming weeks and months, we'll hear from leaders across the travel corporation who we think have a great story to tell. We'll dive deep into their formative years, what drew them to travel, what makes them tick, and how they get their inspiration. Plus, because we send so many thousands of guests to all parts of the world each year on journeys of exploration and joy, we will ask our leaders about their travel lives, where they've been, what they've seen, and where to next. Today's guest could have ended up spending his working life fishing for cod in Britain's North Sea, but a desire to seek new horizons has seen him enjoy a career and a life that is as varied as it is interesting. But who is the real Adam Armstrong? Hello, Scotty. The real Adam Armstrong, well, as you said, northeast lad from northeast of England, got out, done good, and having a bit of fun in the travel industry. Curious turn of events, but it's been an interesting 40-odd years. Well, it's brilliant to catch up with you. I'm very grateful for your time. And for the record, Adam, you're the global CEO of Contiki Holidays, a role that you've been in for what, the last year or so. 18 months now, I think, 18, 19 months. Yeah, and that's that's flown by, I'm sure. Yeah, it has. Um, it's, you know, COVID obviously has been a big part or has been a, an overriding part of the whole experience. And uh, it's, it, I think that has made it fly past a bit quicker than perhaps it would have been. But yeah, 18 months in the job and uh, coming out on the other side of COVID now and looking forward to a more positive, happy 18 months when we get people traveling. Well, very happy to have some time with you today and grateful for it. As as we do with these podcasts where we go beyond the business card, it's an opportunity to learn a little bit more about you and what's shaped you to become the person that you are today. And uh, you are a, a, a man of, of the northeast, the, the northeast of England. And so tell us about that time. Tell us about your life growing up in Amble, which is a, a small coastal town in Northumberland, northeast England. Yeah, so Amble, or Amble by the Sea, as it was known when I was growing up, we've dropped the by the sea now, um, is a little fishing town, about 5,000 people on the northeast coast of England. It's in what I often describe it as like the, the forgotten wilderness between Newcastle, which is the last uh, major city in, in England, and Edinburgh, which is the first major city in Scotland. And it's this beautiful windswept beaches and castles area of, of the countryside uh, where I was fortunate enough to grow up. You know, there's a road, the main road that links uh, London to Edinburgh, the A1. It's a motorway for most of the way, but when it gets to my part of the world, it turns into a single carriage, almost a mud track. Um, that's how quiet and um, remote it is. But a really amazing part of the world. Um, grew up in a, in a big family house. Literally on the beach, um, on the edge of the town. Dad, Dad's a fisherman, a retired fisherman. Um, three of my brothers, my older brothers, followed followed him into the family business. Uh, I don't know, probably they were probably the fourth or the fifth generation. Uh, Mum was a, a nurse, and then uh, left that behind to raise five boys, five five brothers. I was the fourth. Um, and they're all still in the same town, pretty much, all my, my extended family, brothers, wives, nephews and nieces. Um, sadly, no, no more grandparents left, um, but everyone's still in the town. And I try and get back there every, uh, every year. Even when I was living in Australia, I'd get up there to, to say hello. Um, 
do the round, see the family, uh, and see all the new children that had arrived um, in between the two, the, the, between now and the, and the last visit. And now, now family life is uh, me and my partner, who's also called Adam, um, living here in Geneva. Uh, he's also British, um, met in Australia uh, 12, 13 years ago. Uh, no kids, no pets, just adjusting to a new life back in Europe and adjusting to life as we come out of restrictions and COVID and so on. So that's, in a nutshell, that's that's where I am today and where I come from. And you, know, you, you speak fondly, would I say, of that time in your life when you, you were back growing up and with, it was an idyllic life? Was it a, a tough life? I mean, I, I know for myself that part of the world is full of uh, people that... that work hard and, and play hard there's a sense of community is it a place that you enjoyed did you fit yeah yeah in in the main yes um you know I look back with great fondness I was you know as I said we lived literally on the beach so it was an outdoors youth you know we'd be out every day playing it was in the days when you you know you just disappear on school holidays you'd, you'd go out at nine o'clock and you'd, you'd come back at 5 p.m and you'd, you'd had a great day on the beach or wherever so great place to to grow up very strong work ethic in you know my family so fishing is not the most glamorous of industries um long hours hard hard manual work um and also a mining uh, background like where you come from so um you know friends of my family were were miners and remember the the great miners strike in the, in the 80s one of the first things I remember on our street of you know friends of the family not working and being on strike. What's a strike? But, you know, learning, learning stuff like that. And and then you know, going back to fishing as well. I, I my my father was fortunate enough in his early career to fish when things were good. But as I was growing up, kind of into my early teens, things were getting pretty pretty tough in the fishing industry with. EU restrictions and regulations on what you could and couldn't catch and how much you could catch and so on and fish stocks being depleted so yeah it was um it was an it was, a, it was an idyllic place to grow up but it was not without its trials and tribulations of the environment of two hard hard industries fishing and mining so how, how did you get on I mean let's talk about your your school life good student did well yeah embarrassingly I was a, I was like a you know teacher's pet nerd student and you know and that that's that's part of my youth that I perhaps I mean it's led me to great great things beyond but um you know there's there's stuff that comes with being the teacher's pet and the nerd and the you know the top top of the class student which is you know everyone kind of throws names at you and so there's a bit of bullying as as a as a kid but you know got on with it and uh, got my head down, kept my head down, and and was was a good student. Bit of a bit of a black sheep of the family in that respect. You know, my, my brothers all did 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 well, but I don't know where where it came from. But just was quite capable in most subjects. Not so much in PE and games and that sort of stuff and art, but in you know in sciences and maths and English and geography, which I then went. And did as a degree at university. Yeah, I was, I was I was a good good student. I was also lucky lucky because I went to a quite a small school, one of the smallest schools in Northumberland, smallest high schools, um, 
and you know probably got more attention from from those teachers who thought I had had potential. So, you know, respectfully, sometimes when you when you come from a small place, and we've already spoken to Melissa de Silva, who shared similar sentiment that there is a desire at that point. You either um, fit in, I suppose, might be the word, and you followed the the path that's been prepared for you, and that's no disrespect to anybody's family or, or outlook, or you you break away from that. And you know, when you break away from that, sometimes within that environment, that's not always easy to do. You almost have to to break away. You have to move away. So, post school, obviously, not to embarrass you, a very capable student. You got good grades. Did that then? Did it enter your head that you would stay in the town that you grew up in, or did you know or have a desire that you were going to have to go somewhere else to live the life you wanted? Yeah, and for for a whole host of reasons, uh, I knew, and I can't remember when this started, but I knew at an early age that I was going to have to get out. That I was, you know, the black sheep. That I was different, um, and that there probably wasn't enough in that region to satisfy. Um, what I what I wanted to do in my in my in my future. I didn't want to go into the fishing the fishing industry. I didn't want to follow the footsteps of my brothers. Um, it's it, it's a it's a great profession for them. It just was not for me. You know, com- completely not the right thing for me. I did go for the record. I did as a kid. I did go out fishing with my dad and brothers a, a couple of times and spent most of my time lying down trying not to be sick so you know that was kind of the final final nail in the coffin so you know my plan was stay at school till I'm 18 then I will go to university and um, that will propel me to something or other that's not in Northumberland it's probably in London or maybe maybe I could go and live somewhere else in the world but it wasn't like I had a specific plan of I will go to this university I will study this it will lead me to this profession and it will lead me to New York, Sydney, Singapore. It was just a general desire to get my head down, get the results, get a degree and and use that to, to, to get out. With the greatest respect to, to Northumberland, which I love and I, I adore going back, but I, I didn't see myself having a future there, having a career there. Probably somewhere I would go back and retire to in later life, but I, I knew I had to, had to get out. And you know, again, you know, we, we don't labour this point, but and and again, it's only sharing what you and I have spoken about, you know, in, in other conversations. That horizon to go to university was that at the time when you were growing up, were other people going to university from town, or was that the expectation? Yes and no. I mean, there, none of none of my brothers had before me had gone to university, my, my father not, my dad, my mum had studied as a nurse. Um, on my mum's side, the, my, her brother and sister had gone to university, but no one on my, on my father's side of the family had ever been to university. So that was, that was, that was, uh, that was new. And I remember my grandfather being quite surprised, shall we put it, that A, I wasn't going to go into the, the fishing business and B, university what's that why why would you why would you want to go what go and do that why would someone from amble be going to university so that was kind of the context but um i i i knew i wanted to go and then kind of curiously um my my teachers i identified a few of us in my year 
that maybe should consider applying to Oxford or Cambridge, which I hadn't really considered myself good enough for. It was never really in my 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 ambition. But it sounded sounded interesting, and so a few of us applied, and uh, I randomly um, selected a college in in Oxford, um, and ultimately, long story short, I was the only one that ended up going. Um, got a got a got a, got offered a place, and then got the grades and and went, and I was the second person in my school ever to go to Oxford or Cambridge, in its in its history. So, yeah, first person in my family to go university and uh, not just university but Oxford which is pretty prestigious. It's quite some journey you know, coming from that, that town where probably expectation was, was set and, and again and I've said it before respectfully through to not just going to university Adam but going to one of the most prestigious learning institutions in the world so uh, I think it's fair to say if you don't mind me saying that you kind of understate your your capabilities but you did go to university and you ended up with a, a first class degree what what did you study how did that shape you how did that prepare you for for this career that is is travel yeah i i, I did a, a degree in geography which isn't when i tell people in australia for example where i lived for 16 years it really wasn't a degree subject in in australia but it's a it's a it's a pretty common kind of standard subject in in the UK and it was my best subject and my favorite subject at school so just going back to what I said earlier I didn't really have a grand plan of what I you know what I would end up doing I just picked my favorite subject in sixth form which was geography and I was good at it that just seemed to be the logical um logical subject you know, I didn't want to be an engineer. Didn't didn't know I wanted to be an engineer or a doctor. You know, one of those more vocational subjects. So I just thought geography will 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 do me for a couple of years and will keep my opportunities open for whatever career come comes from that. Um, and the Oxford course had lots of stuff in it, lots of modules in it that were, were of interest to me. Um, it was it was a baptism of fire, I would say, for one of a better phrase for the first term or two because it was just so different to uh, what I to my life experience shall we say um before that for the 18 years before that living in a small town going to a small school um transitioning from that to you know this ivy league university where you're just surrounded by really clever people everyone's clever everyone's smart and just feeling out of my depth, um, and you know, I, um, my accent. I don't, I don't, I don't sound a lot like I come from the northeast today, but I did back then, and I, you know, I made a conscious decision then that I had to tone down the accent so that I'd be taken more seriously because I was from the north, and from a state school, uh, which if you if you're not from the UK, um, to two things that weren't particularly common in Oxford or Cambridge at that time were northern people and state school people and I ticked both of those boxes um which incidentally one of my tutors who interviewed me to get the place uh, admitted on my leaving dinner that that was that was part of, like kind of the major reason he chose me aside from my academic ability was you're from the north and uh, and you're from state school so that's you know, two fingers up to the establishment 
at my college, but that's by the by. So yeah, it was a it was a bit of a rocky start, kind of finding my feet, working my way through, not only going to university but going to this this weird traditional university, um, one of the oldest in the world, and working out how working out you know how to how to work that system, work in that system, and also working out who who my friends were going to be. I, I like many people. When you go to university, you often say you, you, the people you meet in your first couple of weeks they're not they're not the friends that you have at the end of university. You know, you, you, it takes you a while to find your people, and it really did. Once I found my my people who are my friends st- still today in my second term, it all just seemed to magically fit into place. I settled down academically. I got 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 rid of that inferiority complex about I don't. I don't belong here. I don't deserve to be here. Um, and I, I, I got into the swing of things. And I, and I say this um, quite a bit. That it was possibly the best three years of my life in the end. Just an amazing, amazing experience to be in that environment. The quality of teaching, the you know, the history of where I was, the, the people who 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 um, studied there. In my college, for example, um, the prime minister. We had the prime minister of the UK. Um, and Australia simultaneously a couple of years, a couple of years after I'd left. But they'd studied, they'd studied before me at, at, at my college, um, the Archbishop of Canterbury and, and so on. So all, all these alumni that had been to my college, um, kind of kind of daunting when you walk into the into the into the, the college dining room and all these these portraits of all these famous important people, and then there's me. Spotty-faced, eighteen-year-old Adam from from Amble, Northumberland. Um, yeah, it's quite quite a contrast. But I, it was, as I said, an amazing three years of my life. Did did that time to be away from your upbringing and to have to be exposed to you know, those people that you spoke of to to a, a very different environment? And you spoke about enjoying it and being, <clears throat> excuse me, a great time in your life. Did that allow you to be who you really were? Was that an environment that was comfortable for you once you'd kind of got over that initial I don't belong imposter syndrome? Was it a place that allowed you to build that confidence and prosper? Because, you know, the Adam that I've got to to know over the last 18 months and thoroughly enjoyed doing so is somebody that is, is obviously intelligent and articulate but has also still got that warmth and and humility and and I think that when you have that that often comes from a position of of being confident in who you are did that was that that time did that start you on that journey yeah I think with with you know 20 odd years um, of hindsight to you know to look back and analyze that time I think what I realized maybe subconsciously at the time was that you know you you get put into this institution with you know another 100 people in my year with another 100 other really intelligent people but then very quickly they start to they, they start to be graded as well so there's, there's 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 the really clever and then there's the less clever clever i'm kind of struggling to to articulate it but there's there, there's still a continuum within that that group of 100 100 people and um I just realized that, you know, if I just continue doing what I was doing at school, get your head down, um, do the work, um, do the extra work when needed uh, and deliver good, 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 good output, good essays, 
go to all the lectures, then you'll be successful. And that, that's what I did. But I also got my head around um, having a bit of a social life at, at the same time at university. So it wasn't just all work and, and no play. So I managed to get a bit of a balance there as well. Today, folks, we're joined by global CEO for Contiki Holidays, Adam Armstrong. Adam, let's turn now to your, your career, your business life. We, we heard in the first part of the podcast about your time at, at university. So you're, you're, you're ready to go now. You're ready to join the real world with that degree in your back pocket. Not necessarily with a plan on where you wanted to be or wanted to go. Would that be fair? And so, so tell us about how your career has, has unfolded over, over these years. Well, I mean, interestingly enough, I, I got this amazing degree from an amazing university and I didn't have a job when I left university, right? So that was a bit embarrassing, I think, in, in a way, because, you know, I'd gone off to, to, you know, to, my, to my friends and family back, in, back home. You know, I'd gone off on this amazing journey and the expectation was, oh, he, you know, he's, he's gone to Oxford. He will just walk into any number of jobs. And the, the harsh reality was, you know, I, I interviewed, you know, my final year for a load of graduate programs, you know, um, management consultants, finance companies, British Airways, which was the one I was really excited about. Uh, we'll get to travel in a minute, travel industry. And I, I didn't, I didn't get any of them. Um, so I finished up at Oxford, um, had my 21st birthday, did my finals, packed the car up and drove back to Amble. And I rode the summer out. It was a particularly nice summer, as I recall, um, as a waiter, a general dog's body at a at a wedding venue, a, you know, stately home close to close to my my parents' house, and just started trying to find a job. And I always wanted to work in the travel industry, and so that was kind of exclusively what I was looking at um, during um, those that that summer of 2000, uh, trying to find something in the travel industry. And uh, my first job, I finally got a, a job that I was really excited about, was with a company called Thompson Holidays, who are part of, uh, had been taken over then by TUI, who's the biggest tour operator in Europe. And so my job was as a, an assistant product manager in their London headquarters. Um, where I scraped by on a really bad London salary, uh, living in the, the spare room of a friend of mine for a, a dirt cheap rent. And that was really my first proper job in the travel industry. And I was stoked to get that job because I'd been on holidays with Thompson as a kid. And that was kind of my f first foray into, and kind of, I think so the seed of wanting to work in the travel industry was on Thompson holidays, on package holidays from Newcastle to the Mediterranean, you know, to the Greek islands, Spanish islands. And so to finally get a, to get a job with Thompson, who were the biggest tour operator uh, at the time, and possibly still are, in the package holiday industry, was just phenomenal. And the wage wasn't great, but just the experience to get that foot in the door uh, to work for Thompson was, um, was very, very exciting. My ambition or impatience got the better of me, and I decided... I can do, but I can I can do better than this paltry salary. So I uh, I got a, a job 
brief, brief, brief job that lasted only three months because I, I, it was, it was just, just mind-numbingly boring. Uh, with the Civil Aviation Authority and their Atoll licensing program, um, you know, part of the civil service. It was, uh, it was nine to five. There wasn't enough work to do between nine to five. Um, so I was literally twiddling my thumbs for best part of half the day, every day. So I uh, I quickly got bored of that and uh, started looking for, for, for another job. And that's when I got into cruising, which was where I spent most of my career to date was in the cruise industry. And so my first job with uh, in cruising was as a market planning assistant for P&O Princess Cruises, as it was known then, the group P&O Cruises and Princess Cruises, a British British uh, cruise cruise group based in London. And that was, again, an, a, a dream job. Um, as, as I kind of developed a bit of an interest in cruise ships and become a bit of a cruise ship geek at that point, and we were, as a family, taking cruise holidays. So to get a job at the biggest British cruise line was, uh, was quite exciting. Um, what was less exciting was I joined literally the week after September the 11th. Um, so it was not a great time for the cruise industry, not a great time for the travel industry. But that was really where I, where I started to learn my, or hone my skills in, in the cruise industry in particular. And as a market planning analyst, a market planning assistant, basically what I was doing was tracking what our competitors were doing. That was my day, that was, my day, was uh, scouring newspapers. And it was print newspapers then. We didn't, it wasn't electronic. It was getting the newspapers every day, scouring it for any news about what our competitors were doing, getting their brochures, you know, paper brochures, remember them, um, getting all the cruise, cruise line brochures, scouring all the travel agencies around the office, pretend, you know, because I went there so often, they must have been, they knew, they knew there was something up, getting their brochures and looking at their pricing and analyzing their pricing and their, their itineraries and so on. And that was my job. You'd have almost had, you'd have almost had teletext to look at back in the day, wouldn't you? Teletext and, was and, still and, a thing. Yeah, teletext holidays were still a thing back then. We used to, we used to load our prices up on teletext for our cruises, yeah, wow, that's that's a blast from the past. I, I'd say that most of the people listening to this podcast will be Googling Teletext holidays now because they won't have a clue what we're talking about, but that's certainly where you, you got those those deals. I, I want to move on to where you developed into to leadership. Yeah. So now there are a number of roles that you were part of you know, within the Carnival Group starting in the UK. You moved out to Australia as a succumbent to Sydney, a, a a one-year trip that lasted 16 years. Obviously, you must have enjoyed it down there. And then a move a little bit later to Royal Caribbean, Carnival's big competitor. Why the move? What was the opportunity there? Yeah, so so, so Carnival Group bought Pino Princess, um, and then I moved with them to Sydney. And the secondment was to, to, to like a project manager role to manage the, the, the merging of those two companies in the Sydney office and in, in the Australia market it was the last market they, they got to. So it was a, it was a one year secondment. I ended up staying there uh, in Australia for 16 years and I became a citizen and, and met Adam and bought a house and all that good stuff. But in terms of my career there, I just, I just moved up the ranks at, at, at Carnival after that, that project was completed. Um, I ended up running the market planning department, which was pricing, 
uh, revenue management, yield, itinerary planning and strategy. And that's really when I first started managing people. And to be honest, I wasn't very good at it. I don't think I was born. I don't think I was born to be a leader. Um, in my mind, there are you know there there are people who were born to do it, and it comes very easily. And then there are people like me who can be trained, can be taught how to do it. But I found it quite difficult to begin with, and I wasn't very successful to begin with because um, I just didn't have the experience and the skills to be able to do it, and probably didn't have the mentoring. To, to teach me how to do it. So I made some, some, some mistakes and learned from those mistakes in those early days of managing a small team. And then um, my, the, the, the ex-president of, uh, of Carnival Australia, who had left by this point, um, who saw great potential in me clearly, um, asked me to, to jump ship, literally or metaphorically, um, from the number one cruise group in the world to the number two, who were going to set up an office in Australia, open their first office in Australia. And so I then went to managing a much larger um, team empire, not an empire, but, you know, a, a much, much broader range of, of departments and a much bigger um, group of people. And that really is probably where I, I honed my leadership skills properly and still, you know, made some some errors along the way, but had, had the experience not only of growing, of opening and growing a, a big office there, um, but becoming ultimately the managing director of that 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 business um, and leading a big team uh, and leading a business that was 10 times bigger than it was when, when we opened it um, back in 2009, when I left about 10 years later. So that, that's where I, I think I honed my leadership skills. And then um, I moved to a smaller brand uh, a little bit later to Silver Sea and then then to Contiki. So let's let's move on into that that leadership space and you know an interesting admission of of sorts if you like you know, not not born a leader something is that because of as well you talk about mentorship but is it personality I mean are you are you naturally a lot of people that don't have a formal training in leadership it comes from sport or it, it's you know it, it's something that gives them at least a, an entry into being able to speak to a group in front of a group. Now, don't I'm not confusing that with leadership. I'm just saying that sometimes if you're somebody that that hasn't had those roles and responsibilities, that forms your leadership style. Because you've spoken to me before about being far more, in your words, collaborative rather than instructional obstructive you know there and that's isn't that a leadership that prepares you for the modern world and a business like Contiki yeah I was I was I was never really good at sport um or team sport interesting like my interestingly my 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 the one sport I was good at as a as a, as a kid growing up was cross-country running you know a, an independent sport you do by yourself and um, my favourite sport right now is skiing, which is another generally independent sport that you do do by yourself. So, no, I I didn't get that experience from, from any experience from sport. I, I I was generally quite a quite a talkative um, kid, um, so you know I was able to hold a conversation and en- entertain people and you know talk, um, but I didn't didn't have the leadership experience. 
from from sport or, or, or any other any other background. So I, you know, I, I was I was I was okay. My my natural tendency was to be quite independent in my work. So as an analyst, you know, in my early career, I was very happy to sit and do my own thing and not have to think about managing other people or think about other people in, in the team. I was just very, very happy to be independent. And so the transition from that to managing teams is quite, quite difficult, even though I'm, you know, quite outgoing and, and talkative and got fairly, fairly okay people skills. The transition from a very independent role to a very collaborative role was, was challenging. And I got it wrong. I got in many ways, I got it, got it wrong at the beginning and I was quite hard on people. Um, my early, my first first team was was quite hard on, and, and I and I learned a lot from that experience from getting the feedback from them back in back in Carnival Australia. Is that you know, I, or anybody in a leadership role? It's it's never straightforward. We all I think understand that, regardless of what level of leadership somebody's at. But you know, would it be fair that because being out the front wasn't natural to you? That when you talk about those those mistakes and those is those because you had to you, you felt that you had to show that you were strong as a leader and there can often be confused strength as a leader versus being um, I guess I wouldn't say a bully but you know a forceful forceful is probably yeah. a way of describing it yeah I was I was I was I was pretty forceful and I was just very focused on getting the job done and not very focused about how to manage people to do the job he was just very focused on the end result you know filling the ship the highest price as quickly as possible and not thinking about taking people along on the journey and thinking about different people's different personalities and different different skill sets to adapt my leadership style around them it's just like we've got this thing to do and why why aren't you doing it you know it was simple as that so i very quickly learned that's probably not a long-term long-term recipe for success so you know we we learn and there's a phrase and i and i heard it on a, another podcast i've unashamedly stolen it but it's you know failure is a a bruise not a tattoo in other words those things that happen we can learn from so as a leader today with you know a, a, a pretty talented group of of people doing some really wonderful work particularly around you know, how we will work in a post-pandemic environment and why people will be drawn to the, the brand that's Contiolos. What what environment do you provide now? What do you see in yourself as a leader that creates an environment where people can be the the, the best version of themselves, both personally and professionally? Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that, that quote about failing as a bruise. But one of the few podcasts I listen to, I'm not a big podcast listener, I've come to them quite late, especially during uh, COVID walking around Lake Geneva um, is a podcast called How to Fail by Elizabeth Day, a very posh English lady. Um, but the concept, and she interviews um, a variety of people, famous and otherwise, about what have been their three failures in, in life and what have they learned from them. And the, 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 her message is you have to learn from your failures to become a better person, be that a better manager, better actor, better doctor, whatever whatever it is. So I've learned from my failures, and so trial and error has been you know a pretty uh, pretty hard way to learn. 
um, you know, I haven't done a lot of training, you know, formal training. I don't read a lot of you know, management leadership books. It's my, my, my journey has really been through trial and error of trialing things myself. Um, and then secondly, secondly, observing others. So just looking at how my managers behave, good, both good and bad, right? So I've had good managers and I've had bad managers. And I try to aspire to take all the good things um, from, from the good ones and not do the bad stuff from the bad ones. And my, my, my broad conclusion after a couple of decades of being managed and uh, working with um, fairly senior people, you know, CEOs and chairmen or chair and chairwomen of various uh, businesses in my, in my time is that there's roughly two types of leaders. In, in my eyes. One, there's, there's collaborative leaders, and two, there's more obstructive and dictator. I don't use the, I use the word dictator um, very loosely, but you know, a more dictatorial leader. And I, I hope I'm more of column A than column B. Uh, and the collaborative leader is someone who I describe it as, you know, you feel like they're, you're on the same team. You're all trying to do the same thing and work together. Um, to get to, to to the out to the to the out the desired outcome, whereas the second type of leader is just a little bit more, well, a lot more challenging, a bit of a pain in the ass, if I can use that that phrase, not not too uh, not too vulgar, um, just always challenging you and and just makes life difficult for you, and I, and ultimately both leaders might want the best for you, but they they approach it quite differently, and I like working with the first group rather than the second. And so that's become and that's become my leadership style, I think. More collaborative and try to use people's strengths um, and go on the journey together and rather than um, telling them what they should do. That's that's really my my conclusion of watching watching people. And that's really how that's influenced my leadership style. Maybe my maybe my team might disagree with that, but that's that's kind of how I think of myself more in that first box and the second. Now that collaborative approach, and you know, if if you allow me to say, I certainly see that in the way that you approach your dealings with with all of us. But I I saw a, a quote, and again, it, it comes from sport, so it might be a little bit mundane that that's where you know you can get your inspiration constantly. But it says, you know getting my players or my team to understand or to believe that the impossible was possible, that's the difference between management and leadership. And so to your point around you know, collaboration, you know, one of the things that if you are going to have a you know, good collaboration, obviously you want a range of opinions, a range of views, a range of people from different backgrounds be that you know by by culture be it by life experience be it by you know orientation but be a whole host of things that make us all <clears throat> excuse me individuals do you actively look for a a, a different group of people to get different ideas when you're making decisions or putting a team together are you actively looking for different points of view yeah i, I am and but what i what i would also say on this Going back to some of the mistakes I've made as as a leader, there's there's great value about getting a diversity of opinion, but you can't lead. In most cases, you can't lead 
by by group consensus. So you've got to go out. It's important to get a variety of people around the table, be that gender, race, religion, age, whatever. It's important to get all that, that those people around the table and get the get the get the opinion of those people and the input of those people. But ultimately, you're not going to be able to please everyone still around the table. So you try to come up with a with a consensus conclusion from all those varying viewpoints is really problematic and impossible in most cases. And I tried that when I became the managing director of Royal Caribbean in Australia. I tried to manage by consensus and it just wasn't successful because most of the time, nine times out of the ten, you you have to you have to make a call. And you make that call based on all the information that's provided, but it's not going to please everyone around the table. It's not going to satisfy everyone around the table. You've just got to decide as the as the leader, as the boss, what's gonna what's gonna ultimately get you to what you're trying to do, which is your commercial targets or your guest experience targets or or whatever they are. So yeah, it's important to get everyone's opinion, everyone's input, but ultimately you are going to have to make the decision at the end of the day that might not please everyone around the table, but should please most people around the table. The, the last question that I want to ask you, or I've got two questions. I still want to kind of to ask you a little bit more about your views on diversity. One of the great opportunities that will come out of these podcasts that we're doing is that we're getting people who, it would be far too lazy to say, oh, you know, that person represents this or represents that because each of us is individual and we bring our own collective set of skills and experiences. I think we all understand that. But it's also important, I think, as we look at our emerging leaders or people that will listen to this, that depending on where they're at in their life, and you know, for you, is it you know, coming from a small town where you know, horizons may have been, and these are my words, not yours, limited, or you know, as, as a a gay man who's in a leadership role. We've spoken to other people who are mums, for example, and so they can speak to people who may have similar um, life experiences and it creates a pathway for them. So I don't want to be as trivial as to say because of you know, what makes you up to be Adam. You are Adam. But are there things that you would share with people based on your learnings if they can relate to parts of your life or, or experiences that can help them to to grow their own career or just life in general yeah i mean d- d- diversity is pretty important to me with, from my background so you know the northern state school boy going to the posh university um a, a fairly youngish youngish gay leader in a, in a big business you know that you know it's i in many ways i shouldn't be here right it was this was not my destiny um so there's this the you know, going back to my my professor's comments on my my leaving dinner at university, you know, he d- deliberately chosen me because of my my background, my di- my diversity was uh, part of the reason why I was there in the first place. Um, so I, and maybe that seed, maybe that so so the seed as as a twenty one year old um, to 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 write to, to raise the importance of diversity and setting an example to to others of what. What could be done? What can be achieved? And I, I think that probably comes to the fore even more now as a as a more senior leader in a in a business as the you know the head of head of a brand. Today, we're folks were with Adam Armstrong, and in the last part of our podcast, the the short time that we've got left together, I'm going to talk about not just your 
your life and travel, Adam, but your, your travel life. So I've got a few rapid-fire questions to, to wrap up with you. You talk about travel. Your defining moment in travel. Like Melissa in her um, in her podcast response, so many so many different experiences. I mean, I've been really lucky to travel extensively around the world, but you know, there there are a few. I think the, the the most probably the most defining experience was you know as a kid going on on package holidays, which sowed the seed for my career in travel. So you know going on a plane from Newcastle International Airport to Corfu and Crete and and Mallorca and Menorca, you know, they, you know, pretty humble, um, good value holidays. They, that was probably the first defining holiday or travel experience. And then more recently, um, I, you know, and I tell anyone who will listen, my, my experience on an Antarctica expedition cruise two years ago, just before COVID, that was like, that was a life affirming experience to be in the middle of nowhere in antarctica on the my seventh continent um was a was an amazing emotional teary at times experience to be to be down there from from that package holiday beginnings um to uh, a cruise ship in in you know the, the antarctic was it's it's a pretty exciting transition and all the stuff in between you and I have talked uh, different times about your experiences in travel and some of the places that you've been, and you, you've mentioned Antarctica. You've also mentioned seeing the gorillas in Rwanda, being on safari, the time on the Panama, Panama Canal. But you also, I guess, it was those, if, if it's the right term, those simple things in life, those moments, and perhaps... Well, definitely, I think most of us feel robbed, if that's the right word, of those experiences over the last couple of years. We certainly have been given um, a reminder of things that uh, I know I won't speak for you. I'd taken for granted just those freedoms that I'd enjoyed and the places and people that I'd had the chance to, to meet and, and experience. But you you talk about the simple stuff and what what does that look like to you in terms of your travels there's there's like marquee events like the gorillas and antarctica and going through the panama canal but which which were amazing and you know they're the things that come to your mind straight away when people ask ask you about you know what's what's been your favorite holiday experience but the there's there's a couple of examples where i just think they were just beautiful moments in time and there was nothing particularly extraordinary or um, amazing or unusual about them, but they're just beautiful, warm moments in time that I remember really fondly. And one of them was just six months ago, less than six months ago with my mom and dad. I went on a cruise with my mom and dad. First time we'd been on a holiday together for many years. And it was a deck party uh, out in the Mediterranean, beautiful, warm night. And my dad got up and danced. I haven't seen my dad dance for decades. My mom and dad and myself and some some friends that we'd made on the cruise, we were out, we were dancing to cheesy music, you know, it was hot, terrible music. We were dancing out and it was just such fun. And it's like, just if I could bottle that moment every, and, and get it out every couple of months. And then another one is just Adam and I have got a, a Greek island that we love, a small Greek island called Foligandros. And there's a little taverna on the beach you can only get to it by boat. And just 
afternoon sitting there in the taverna drinking um, dubiously, uh, dubiously tasting, dubiously cheap, but it, it tastes great in the moment. Uh, Greek wine at that taverna for hours, just looking at the amazing scenery. And it's and Greece is one of my favorite countries, just sitting there, taking it in. And it's just that, you know, again, if you could bottle that moment and get it out at the end of, end of a hard week, uh, in the office or working from home, uh, just a beautiful, beautiful moment. That's lovely. Good for you. Where to next? Well, um, I, you know, if I, with my with my Contiki hat on, um, as the CEO of Contiki, I'd love to go out and actually meet my team. Um, so, I've, we, Scotty and I, we, 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 you and I have not met in person. Um, I've not met anyone in the US, Canada, Africa, Asia offices. So, I'd love to get out and actually meet the team this year. I'd love to get good to go home to Australia, home in inverted commas. That's my, you know, my, my second home. I'd love to get back to Sydney uh, and see my friends uh, who I've not seen there for almost two years. Um, but I think our plan might really for this year, which was the plan for why, you know, why we moved to Geneva, partly um, the job is obviously amazing, but um, moving to Europe too was to, to spend more time in Europe. Um, and we're in a, such a great location in Geneva. We can fly or, or drive to everywhere easily in Europe. It's an amazing, amazingly connected city. So this summer, we'll just be taking weekend breaks and trying to see more of Europe. My last question to you, Adam, and, and thanks for being so generous with your time. The 20-year-old or 21-year-old Adam Armstrong, post-University of Oxford, geography, first-class degree, what advice would you give that version of yourself, that young man? Well, the one thing we haven't talked about was is work-life balance. And that's something that has pl- or did plague me for many years in my career. And what I would tell my 20-year-old self now is there's really no such thing as perfect work-life balance. It ebbs and flows. And sometimes you'll, you'll be, it'll be under control and sometimes it won't. Um, but you know it's never going to be perfect. You're sometimes going to going to going to be busier than others. But don't miss the, the big personal stuff. Don't compromise the big personal stuff with friends and family um, for work. You know there's some some moments, some some events and experiences with people, your 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 loved ones that you won't be able to recreate if you're not there. So try and get try and try and get the balance, but really prioritize the family and friends stuff because that's really important. Adam, you've been brilliant. Thoroughly enjoyed having some time with you. For those listening out there, uh, if you'd like to, if there's a a leader that you know that you think others would benefit from hearing from, please flip me an email, scott.cleaver at ttc.com as we'd we'd love to get them on. Adam, appreciate it. Um, Thanks again and and very much look forward to... uh, having that time together in person uh, when the storm finally blows over. Looking forward to getting back to Auckland. It's been a while. Thanks, Scotty.